Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Vishal Sunak, the co-founder and CEO of Link Squares, a contract management solution for in-house legal teams to draft, store, search, and analyze agreements. In 2015, Vishal was working at Backupify, which was about to get acquired. The acquiring company wanted to know what was in their customer agreements. But Backupify had thousands of different customer agreements. No one knew what was in them, and there was no easy way to get that information. That firsthand experience of contract management and the pains that in-house legal teams face planted a seed in Vishal's mind of a potential SaaS solution. Eventually, Vishal and his two co-founders took the leap and launched their startup to revolutionize contract management. They built a Ruby on Rails MVP with no backend. In other words, it was good enough to use for demos, but the product didn't actually do anything so customers couldn't use it. The founders then spent nine months interviewing or trying to interview nearly 100 general counsels, and it took them over a year to land their first few customers. Vishal told me that he was worried about building the wrong product and wasting their money, so they wanted to be sure they were solving the right problem. Today, Link Squares does over $10 million in annual recurring revenue, has a team of 70 people, and has raised over $21 million in funding. Hope you enjoy it. Vishal, welcome to the show. Hey, Omar, how are you? I'm great. Good to uh, get this set up and and have this conversation. So uh, let's start by uh, my icebreaker. Do you have a favorite quote or something that inspires or motivates you that you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge uh, New England Patriots fan. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing these days, but (laughs) yeah. So uh, I remember watching this documentary about Bill Belichick, the coach, and he's got uh, hanging outside his office, prove it every week. And uh, resonated really well with me, obviously, because I'm a Patriots fan, (laughs) but uh, just kind of the concept that like, good week, bad week, next week, you got to keep at it. And uh, I've I've always felt strongly about that quote. I mean, the other one is is, uh, Marines, uh, improvise, adapt, overcome, really kind of valuable for the the entrepreneurial journey. So tell us about Link Squares. What does the product do? Who is it for? And what's the main problem that you're helping to solve? Yeah, we're a, we're a contract management suite of products that has two main focuses. Uh, one is pre-signature. So uh, technology software that enables companies to draft agreements, collaborate on them, get them to the point of signing. And then after a contract has been executed, either by hand or, or electronic signature, we have a uh, post-signature product that, that we call Analyze. And it's essentially like a purpose-built repository for legal teams to have a single source of truth of all their executed agreements, both historical and the new ones that are being executed every day. And uh, there's an AI component there. We built our own AI to uh, essentially save people a lot of time collecting metadata. Like, does the contract automatically renew? Does it have termination for convenience? What's the limitation of liability clause say? 
uh, and actually create that kind of structured data, which is really super hard to collect. And that's a product that we actually started with and, and our pre-signature product finalizes is, is newer as of last year. So yeah, suite of products helping in-house legal teams, first and foremost, and then finance, sales, success, account management, you know, everyone kind of thereafter. Great. And then the company was founded in 2015. You've raised about $22 million so far. And where about saw you in terms of revenue? Yeah, we're around 10 million of uh, recurring revenue. Okay, awesome. So how did you come up with the idea for this business? Yeah, my co-founder and I, Chris, uh, worked at a great tech company here in Boston um, where we're based called Backupify. And uh, I, had a, I had an awesome job. Uh, I was in the operations, so I got to touch basically everything in the company and how it operated sales and marketing and data analysis and SaaS metrics and finance ops. And uh, I love that job, buying technology, implementing it. And so the journey of Backupify kind of pushed to the end and there was an acquirer. So this acquirer had strong interest in buying the company. And I remember in one of the kind of first conversations where we met the acquiring company, they asked us what was inside our customer agreements. And um, I think we had six or 7,000 customers now, some of them very small, but kind of maybe a third or, or more than a third were uh, pretty meaningful, significant ARR. So um, what does that mean? Well, we had a subscription agreement with all of our customers that got redlined and got modified. So deviated from kind of the base template. This wasn't like a heavy click through business when you're talking about like, you know, negotiating bigger deal sizes. Also, we had huge logos that used our technology like Logitech and Yahoo and Financial Times, Waitrose, John Lewis, all these great brands, Netflix. And uh, we were forced into using like third-party paper, which is like a thing that big companies do to small companies is they put you into a, subscription services agreement that they try to standardize with all the vendors and it's nothing like yours. And you spend a lot of time and money trying to negotiate back to a place of um, back to center. And so we didn't track like metadata about what we agreed to. And the acquiring company had like a really specific use case in mind. They were a backup company. They had their own cloud. We had built the whole business on like AWS. We were backing up like hundreds of billions of files, like Google Drive and Gmail accounts, like every day and using AWS. And so they said, well, I don't want to pay your AWS bill because it's crazy. We have our own cloud. Can we move your customers' data without telling them and do it fast so we can start reducing our costs? And the answer was, I had no idea. Not one single person had ever thought of the day where we wouldn't use AWS. And uh, well... They were like, okay, great. So uh, customer agreements have the answers. Why don't you tell us which ones have you know, free control? We can move the data anytime for any reason without notifying them. And anything else that, that scenarios were agreed to, like uh, you need to ask permission or you need to give us notice. So I stared down the barrel of this project, just trying to help out, doing whatever I can, like what my job was. And we were pretty disorganized as like a Series B company in hyper growth mode. We didn't have one single source of the truth. Contracts were everywhere. They were all mostly scanned PDFs. So they're completely locked, not searchable by Control F or anything like that. 
And so I started breaking down this problem like, okay, if we went and found all the contracts somehow and we compared that against our ERP so we knew who was active, you know, what could we do with it? Like, could we figure out what's inside them? Like, could we run like text searches or could we, could we run something else like that could give us insights or, or, or could someone read the contract somehow with, with technology? And, and kind of the light bulb moment for us was that, A, there wasn't, wasn't anything out there like this that was solving this pain in contracts post-signature, like fully executed ones. We were completely unprepared to deliver the answer without like a really painful manual review, try to read 6,000 contracts, which just felt impossible. And so that was a real trigger moment. Chris, my co-founder was working like account management, customer success. And I kind of had this director of ops type role. And, and we said to ourselves, hmm, this is interesting. I mean, we're not that crazy. We're not that different. We're, we're a VC backed SaaS company. Maybe other people have felt the same pain. Like, do you know what's inside these contracts? Like, how do you keep track of them after they've been redlined? How do you keep track of third-party paper? And that was really the inspiration to go out and, and, and see if there was something there. Okay, great. So I want to talk about how you, you started to build that product and, and sort of validate it. But what did you guys end up doing with Backupify? Like, did somebody actually have to sit down and go through all of these agreements? <laughs> Given the timeline of the acquisition and, and given kind of you know, other constraints that we had, we ended up deciding that we should email all the customers and uh, tell them that we're going to move them off AWS. And that was ultimately like one of the moments where I said to Chris, like, this is not the way. There's got to be a better way. And he agreed. And, and that's how we <laughs> got started. Okay, great. So... How long did it take from the point that you went through that experience with this acquirer to the point where you guys decided that you were going to build a solution for this? Yeah, great, great question. So 2014, all of this was happening in the fall of 2014. And then that's when kind of the discovery of like, oh, maybe there's something here. And, and we were both working and we were both working at the acquirer company after the deal went through like into 2015 and then we started thinking like, well, we got to have more kind of conversations. And, and uh, like, first off, like who is the buyer? Like who manages contracts? It, we didn't have a lot of knowledge because of the way that Backupify was operating, right? We didn't have a lot of knowledge. Like what do bigger companies do? And so through kind of enough of enough kind of subject matter experts in and around building companies, they, they pointed us to the fact that like at real big companies or even companies that were like two times the size of Backupify, which is like in a couple hundred employees, they have this role, a general counsel. And it was like, oh, the general counsel, that's great. Uh, Chris, how many general counsels do you know? Uh, I don't know any. I don't know any either. Well, now what? <laughs> so 2015, I, I had actually left Datto, the company that bought Backupify, I worked at Inside Squared Revenue Analytics Platform here in Boston doing sales analysis, sales analytics. And uh, I saw a strong appreciation there, you know, strong as I've ever seen it for this kind of thinking that like, we're just going to cold email anyone who could potentially be part of this target market. And I said to Chris, I said, yeah, I mean, I think maybe we should run some cold email. I think cold email would be great. (laughs) 
this would be a great strategy. Like we can go out to market this way. And so ultimately it took us, you know, from 2014 to November, 2015, when we incorporated. And then I kind of decided that I wanted to put all my, put all my free time into this company, which was, you know, people responding to the cold emails and I wanted to start getting on the calls to kind of hear what was going on. And so then I went, Chris had already gone full-time before that. And I kind of went full-time shortly thereafter, like in the start of 2016. And then we never looked back. So when you started cold emailing general counsels, did you guys already have a product or an MVP at that point, or you were just still trying to validate the idea? Yeah, we, we built a uh, clickable prototype, which was actually a Rails app. It was a Rails app that really didn't have a backend that was actually like writing and, and editing and deleting database records. It was mostly just a UI that you know felt really real. You're, you're, you can demo it in browser. It's all kind of fake behind the scenes. And that gave us enough kind of demo-like experience and to kind of communicate how we were thinking about features and get a lot of feedback. So yeah, we had something. It kind of became a lot more real towards the end of 2015 and then into 2016 where we actually started validating what the real product needed to do and actually then started building it. So how much time did you spend building that first version, the one without the back end? We had that up and running in in about maybe 100 days, kind of early in 2015. And it's just like hire a UI designer, kind of think about pages. and, And I'm a I'm an engineering kind of classically trained engineer by by my education. So I love software and, and I kind of raised my hand to say, Chris, I got this part, you know, and, and we can, you can do more of the sales and kind of sales interactions and discovery and feedback sessions with potential people who were, I mean, we weren't even thinking about revenue back then. We were just thinking about feedback. Like, can we get to a hundred, can we talk to a hundred general counsels? And maybe after 100 general counsels, we were able to hear some of the themes that came out of it. And, and it worked. And so, yeah, that's kind of how we divided things up. So I'm curious, like, why did you, why did you decide to build that in, in Rails instead of just using, you know, kind of like a prototyping tool like Envision or something like that? Yeah, I, I guess that's the nerd in me. Um, I, wanted it to, <laughs> I wanted it to uh, look very real. And and there's nothing more real than an actual Rails app with like an actual front end. Right, right. I mean, yeah, it just it, it doesn't have a database, but hey, it's real code, right? So <laughs> it's real. It's buttons and drop downs and tables, and you can click different pages and it loads. And I mean, that was important, kind of, to make people feel like like this thing was real and they could have it. You know, would you pay for it? Like, I, I thought that that was an important thing in the early days, and we've used that same sort of strategy and kind of other other products and initiatives that we've done inside the company just kind of create like a minimum demoable experience and be able to communicate what it is you're doing and what it is this thing does and how it can add value and how it can change your life if you start using it. Uh, Now, there are moments where people would be like, can you click that button? Like, what does that button do? It's like, (laughs) ah, you don't want to see that. That's fine. No, no, moving on. That button is a button to nowhere. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about the the cold email. And, you know, I think we've, at least on, on this show, we've talked about cold email from time to time in the, I don't even know which episodes it was, but there's obviously 
you know, it's kind of a science and art to doing cold email and a lot of persistence required to, to sort of make it work. What was the experience like for you guys? So when you sort of said, okay, well, we don't know any general counsels, we're going to start cold emailing them. What was the initial response like? Yeah, so we used a, a four email sequence and Chris and I would kind of go interchangeably on sending it. And we used Tout App, uh, the only company in the sales enablement space that would sell us one license. Uh, so <laughs> hat, hat tip to TK at Tout App, uh, founder there who uh, was, was nice enough to sell us one. And so... Yeah, the email sequence was pretty straightforward. First email was like, hi, I'm Vishal. I'm, I'm CEO of this company in Boston. And I used to work at a company that looks and feels just like yours, a venture-backed SaaS company. And here's a struggle that I had, which was like, we didn't know what was inside our executed agreements. Like, does this look like you? Does it sound like you? Would you be interested in chatting for 20 minutes? And so, I mean, again, we weren't even really looking for revenue, right? On kind of the early side of, you know, 20, early 2016 and, and late 2015, we weren't even really looking for revenue. It was more like, can we hit this internal milestone of like talking to 100 general counsels and validating that they have this pain so we can then put our foot down on building the real product. And so that was our strategy. And it worked amazingly well. I mean, in the first week, like, I think five or six general counsels of like unicorn tech startups, like name brands, all replied. And I remember like high-fiving Chris and be like, we made it, bro. Like, that's it. Like it's working. It's, it's amazing. And, and uh, we didn't, we didn't close a single one of them and still have it (laughs) to this day, but uh, they're on my most wanted list to get them back. Um, Yeah. It was, it was like the, the feedback just popped like so instantaneously. Like we get so many replies off the first email and people we're interested in hearing more and saying, yeah, yeah no, the, the, I, I agree with you. <laughs> um, and then say, oh, great. Can we set up a time to just chat and just kind of learning? So a lot of learning. And what did you learn from those conversations that, that helped you? Because the, the thing was, it, this was driven by a situation where, you know, a company is in, in conversations about a potential acquisition, but it sounds like, that's not the only use case for the product, right? So, so you discovered something else from these conversations. Yeah. And so uh, when we were getting on these calls with these general counsels, what we were learning was that they, they didn't have like a uh, purpose-built system that was feeding them insights into like executed agreements, making their life easier. And that was a real light bulb moment because that's like a niche that you can go and own. And we learned that like most people are storing their contracts like on-prem, shared network drive, something cloud-based like Box, Dropbox, Google Drive that kind of provide the, the, the repository, though doesn't add any other extra value, right? And so that was awesome. That, that was just amazing learning. We saw it super clearly and... Then we started telling them about like what happens if you could have a single source of truth and you could have like analytics and and full text searching and I'll take care of your scan PDFs and get you great kind of digitized files. Like, could this help you when you needed to go and review them? And kind of, we also learned 
why people review their contracts. Like there's a change to a law or standard, like a new privacy, a new privacy law comes out like GDPR or something like that. And that then creates a trigger point inside the company where they have to go and read all their contracts and see if they're compliant to this new law, issue amendments or, or redo the contracts. And so it was awesome. I mean, those early days, just kind of validating what the pain was, kind of what they were using seemed like complete greenfield space. The other thing is that we learned that there was an applied AI artificial intelligence use case where people were, were kind of suggesting like, well, can you just tell me what the effective date is? Can you just tell me when it renews? And can you just tell me if it has automatic renewal? Or can you just tell me if it has termination for convenience? And can you just tell me, kind of reading between the lines translated into like a machine learning type of technology, which then became the analyzed product that we had. So were there any any sort of competitors out there around that time? I'm trying to figure out, was did you get such a response from people from the cold email because this was something they would just, there was no other solution out there or they were sort of, they were, but they were kind of struggling with sort of half-baked solutions, which didn't solve the problem very well. Like, why do you think they, they seem to respond so well to your cold emails, even though you weren't able to convert a lot of them? <laughs> because contract management is not a new topic category. It's probably 20 years old, 25 years old. And kind of the legacy kind of generation one players they focus their entire software offering pre-signature. So it's like the workflow around getting a document to the point where it can be signed. We said to ourselves, we're going to start with the use case that we know and we felt the pain on, which is post-signature. And so because they had heard of contract management software, some of them have even tried the pre-signature piece. We're able to validate that hey, did the pre-signature piece help you ultimately with the, the pain that I think you have? And, and they were like, no, it didn't. It actually did something that was adjacent to it, which was help us, you know, quote unquote, work more efficiently to get a deal to the point that it can be signed. But it didn't help with the like, can you help me understand what I've already agreed to? And like, what's in the 25,000 contracts we've already executed in the lifespan of the entire company and what's inside all of those, which that wasn't the point of those uh, kind of pre-signature tools was to help you make a better future, help you make a more efficient future, but not looking into the past. And that's really where we found the gold. So I think some people, many people, if they had an idea, they built this prototype and sent out cold emails and, and got this sort of response back that people were were interested they wanted to talk it kind of feels like like you did right you were like yes yeah, steve hey high five we've 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 made it it kind of would make sense to just say let's let's build the product as quickly as possible and see if people will pay for it what was it like why did you guys decide that you were going to take longer why did you how did you come up with a number we want to talk to 100 general counsels before we sort of go to the next step? It was the fear of spending capital that we didn't have, basically running the early days off of our own savings. 
about building the wrong product and sinking all this time and all this money into the wrong product. And just being really hypersensitive around the fact that one, one person isn't enough. Five people aren't enough. 10 people aren't enough. 50 people aren't enough. Like 100 people, you'll be able to see trends. And the trends are the things that we want to bet on. And the trends in aggregate with, with sample size of you know, greater than you know, 75 or, or equal to 100 can help us validate that we're not in like a big competitive pressure cooker, like build this product or, you know, I get deported from the country. Like, like it, it was more like we wanted to be smart about it. We wanted to go slow and we wanted to validate we were headed in the right direction. Now, a million things have changed you know, in a good way, you know, since, since that journey first started, but we at least knew the line of bearing approximately to where we needed to head to. And we're still relatively on that line of bearing. And, and I think people rush into wanting to build something. And that's, and that's cool, right? Like, hey, instead of a clickable prototype, if you got the time and got the resources and you got the cash, you can build a whole full-blown web app. But if you get it wrong, it's pretty defeating. It takes work. You got to rework it. You got you to go back from scratch. And, and that's why like, you know, tools like Envision and the other prototyping tools exist. So you don't have to make that big of a commitment. But we were feeling like the feedback was coming, starting to come pretty fast towards the end of 2015. And we were start, starting to kind of assemble that critical knowledge that we needed. Because now like it's, it's 2021 and we got 70 people at the company. Like we can go, we can go fast. Like, like going fast now is easy. Like we got cash in the bank and people here, we can go fast on anything now, but we, we wanted to set ourselves up in the right way to do that. So did you hit your goal of, of doing a hundred interviews or having conversations with a hundred general councils? Pretty darn close. I'd say. How long did that take? It probably took from, I'd say the summertime of 2015, kind of summertime 2015, like into the fall of 2015 until like March, April, 2016. So just under a year, maybe nine months. I mean, we did it for like nine months. And that's a long time when you're sitting around, like basically hearing people give you feedback. I mean, hats off to my co-founder, Chris, who actually has a ton more patience than I do just personality wise. We hung in there, we stuck around, right? And there's a big story there about sticking around and and learning and, and making a good bet when the time is ready to make it. And were you guys during those nine months, were you going in and kind of refining the, the Rails app, the prototype, or were you just kind of saying, let's just keep testing this thing and, and we'll just focus on the conversations instead? Yeah, I, I spent my time building the prototype and then ultimately the first web application that now is still in production and that's a foundation kind of nights and weekends while Chris spent time during the day kind of gathering feedback, writing these summaries, kind of, hey, this is what I'm hearing. Like, take a look at this. Like, what do you think about that? Like, how could we capture this and encapsulate this kind of feedback into the product? And then there was a little bit of crossover point where the real web application was starting to be built. And the prototype was kind of starting to age itself out. And then eventually we just kind of switched over. Like in 2016, we just kind of switched over to 
using the real demoable experience. And so the prototype served itself well, probably six months, seven months. I mean, we, we used it for a while. So let's talk about how did you get your first 10 customers? Where did they come from? Cold email and uh, one referral. Our first customer, I knew the CEO, the former CEO, she had sold the company here in Boston. And I emailed her and said, I think your company would be a great fit. <laughs> who, who can I talk to? She wasn't operating anymore. She wasn't CEO. So she sent us over to the CFO who, when we walked in there, it said, I have this exact pain. Like we just had to do this big contract review exercise. It was so painful. He asked me if we were reading his emails, like in a jokingly way. And Chris and I looked at each other and we're like, yeah, this is great. And then he asked us how much it costs. And we just said, it's $1,000 a month. It's $12,000. That was it. It was $12,000. <laughs> $12,000. I remember that moment. Yeah. And so kind of one to two cold email and like the first 10 were all cold email. And and we really wanted to prove it. Like the first one, hey, that was cool. That was like an inside thing. We had to go prove it with the company, but we got kind of a referral. Can we get 10 people we don't know? Didn't do us a favor. Didn't write us an email. We, we talked to them. We worked them. We closed them and kind of validated. And once we had 10 kind of early in 2017, uh, early in 2017, we're able to then really think that we could get to 100 or more. And then those, so one was a referral and then the other nine from cold email, were they all people that you'd had some kind of conversation with before? Never. Completely net new. Wow. Complete strangers no friend of mine or a friend of mine's dad who was a general counsel, nothing, complete strangers in the first 10. Um, that's what really what, what we wanted. There's a great article Jason Lumpkin posted about initial traction is 10 unaffiliated customers. And I had read that and said, okay, well, Jason's pretty smart. He knows what he's doing. Let's, let's try to go for 10 this way. That's awesome. And then like ballpark, like how many customers do you have today? Over 300. And have the majority of them come through cold email? Because I know like these days you're doing a bunch of other things mm. around acquisition, but. Yeah, we're trying to, trying to balance out the, the uh, kind of the lead sources, but um, outbound is still really effective. Uh, outbound is super effective with our buyer in its role. I mean, people listening to this should, should be unafraid of using outbound. It has great you know, cost of customer acquisition benefits. And, and also you get a lot of like real-time feedback in the market, like what's going on. So yeah, we still use that. And now, you know, we get a strong, strong customer referral network as, as kind of the word gets out and kind of the review platforms and SEO. And, and if it wasn't a pandemic, I mean, we love a good trade show. Uh, the general councils are a fun bunch. We love sponsoring at trade shows with a fun theme and, and engaging with them. And, and those have all been kind of amazing channels for us. Yeah. I mean, cold email is great if you're getting the kind of response that you guys got. It's it's not so much fun if you're, you're getting no response. It's just you're hearing crickets or people are telling you to, you know, get lost. But yeah, I think there's definitely some lessons here in, in, in terms of if you are not getting an enthusiastic response from people, one, maybe it isn't, 
the right problem. Maybe you're not articulating that problem the right way, or maybe you're not talking to the right person. And it's kind of figuring out, I think, a combination of those three. And it sounds like you guys kind of had had some luck with that when you when you started out. Yeah, the the journey to like product market fit requires like a little bit of luck. It's not all like the spreadsheet. And like you can't you can't make a spreadsheet of product market fit and say, I'm gonna do this and do this in this order, I'm gonna make a Gantt chart and then we're gonna have product market fit. I mean it takes a lot of like iteration, a lot of a lot of bobbing and weaving, a lot of like listening to what you're saying, what they're saying, what their challenges are, how they buy, what tools do they have, like kind of uh, and keep keep working on it, right? It's a continuous work in progress. I mean, even the company today is just a continuous work in progress as we continue to expand our knowledge into our ideal buyer, right? And and that's just the curiosity, the intellectual curiosity to keep learning and never kind of feel like you know it all. That's been extremely valuable for us. So let's talk about some of the the struggles that, that you guys had along the way. You know, you, you were a first time CEO with this business and I want to kind of understand, you know, what that experience has been like. And then also, maybe let's start talking about raising money first. Like I, when you guys sort of decide you want to go and raise money, and uh, you know you've got some, you've got some traction here, and and you know your target market seems to be pretty excited. It seems like a slam dunk that raising money isn't going to be that hard. What was that experience like? Yeah, we did three rounds of financing, so uh, pre-seed, seed, and then Series A. Most recently, last year, and so the first time we raised as part of like our pre-seed financing is, is start with angels, right? Start with smaller checks, like try to raise half a million dollars and, and just kind of start out on the journey, right? Kind of, I had to also build my own knowledge of like venture capital and what it is and how do you get it and how do you talk to people and like, what's the whole point? And, and I had to kind of round out that knowledge. And so I, I used a, a really strong network here in Boston of, so amazing, amazing, like multiple time founders and serial entrepreneurs and sold their businesses that came in and, and really, I call them my senseis. Like, you know, they were able to teach me the game and like also teach me like, okay, this is what this means. Like when, when they say this, they actually mean that. And like, here's the, here's kind of the insiders inside about raising capital. And so uh, when I, when I was first starting out, I thought, maybe venture capitalists do like 50-50, like first-time founders and kind of repeat founders or people who are our name brands or worked at Google or whatever. Um, it's probably like 98-2 or something like that or 99-1 skewed towards people they know, you know, multiple time around. Though I think it's changing these days. That's kind of what I saw and felt, right? And it was really around, how do I tell my story? I'm a no-name yeah, I worked at a great tech company in Boston. Sweet. I wasn't the founder, but I was like employee 30. How am I going to walk into a meeting and tell them that this is the bet that they should place and, and you should bet on me? And so I thought to myself, I didn't go to any Ivy League schools, though I went to a great undergrad in Northeastern. I had some experience working in SaaS companies. I definitely knew the operation of a SaaS company, knew the metrics really well because that was my job. But how am I going to tell an undeniable story? So like you can hate legal technology and you can hate contract management and you can think it's dumb and you don't want to sell it to the general counsel. You don't want to be involved with a company like that. 
but you're going to have to take the meeting because I have a sweet looking ARR line and I'm going to prove it every single day that this thing is real with customers, with revenue, with traction, and I'm going to run a great business. And so the second order metrics, CAC, CAC payback, sales efficiency, lifetime value, all that stuff, gross margin, cause, all that stuff is going to look so good to prove to you that I'm the CEO you should bet on. This is a company that's growing really fast. We found something. We're onto something. Come help me grow it, right? And that was always the kind of strategy that I took. And every founder has to tell their story. Like, why Why is it you? Like, why Why are you starting a, uh, like, Figma? Like, why did you start Figma? Well, like, I was a designer and I have this subject matter knowledge or I know something about this space that other people don't. And, and we kind of said to ourselves, we know something about this space that other people don't. And I'm going to prove it to you with people signing order forms and, and paying us. That's how I'm going to prove that this thing is real. This is, this is not an idea. This is a real business. So what kind of pushback did you get when you started talking to, to investors? A <laughs> hundred different reasons and still to this day, a hundred different reasons. Um, some of the ones I mentioned, I don't like legal technology. I, I think it's, I think it's got too many competitors in it. I, don't think it's as big of a market size as you do. I don't like this part of your story or, or I mean, back in the day, yeah, how you compose the team. I wish you were selling six-figure deals. I wish you were selling $20 deals. I wish you were, you were up market, down market. I wish you didn't have to sell to the general, I mean, all these reasons, right? Like, we're just not interested. I have I mean, the most blanket answer is we have no interest in this space, this product, you, AI, this stuff, this way. I just have no interest in it. I don't have a, I don't have a hypothesis, Omer. That's the, that's the line. Like, we don't have a thesis on this space. All right, man, cool. See you later. Yeah, on to the next one. And then how long did it take before uh, you were able to raise, raise the money? Yeah, pre-seed, uh, found a great family office person that, rang the bell in the New York Stock Exchange twice in their life companies that they started from scratch. And so on a chance meeting, that was how we did kind of our first million dollars into the business to capitalize it, which, you know, still still stay in touch with him and, and such an amazing operator, a lot to learn from. I got my first institutional money, my seed round in 2018 and running. I, I went out to raise $3 million. We ended up raising like $4.8 million. And that was fun. And really kind of felt like the company was arriving and, you know, we were almost at a million of ARR then and feeling like we knew kind of some of the components were in place. And I was able to hire, you know, more on the management team, kind of round out the skill set, bring on CTO, bring on VP of product, bring on CRO, continue to help round out the management team. And then, you know, going out for a series A, you know, we had gone like, like uh, one to like 4 million ARR in one year. It was a wildest year of my life. I'd gone like one to four million ARR. And I, I used that growth basically a quarter ahead of when the pandemic hit to go and kind of like raise our Series A. And, you know, fortunate to find a great partner who believed in in the vision and jump capital lead our Series A. And so took a lot of stone turning, you know, took a lot of, of pitches, took a lot of at-bats. And that's like a big secret to this thing. You got to run it like a sales process, like top of funnel, you know, deal stages. I actually use HubSpot CRM when I'm raising money to just give me a holistic kind of Kanban list view 
of like where all these conversations at, like, am I past the first call? Am I in initial diligence? Like, like, are they at the end? Are they at late stage diligence? Like, where are they? Like, keep on adding more, more people in and keep a big list of, of investors just updated, you know, twice a year. Like, Hey, here's the update about the company going great. This, that, and the other thing we built this, we hit this target. We're here, we're there. And then next time when you're raising capital, it's not like starting from, hello, I'm Vishal, nice to meet you. I've never met you a day in my life. It can be more like, hey, we've been talking and I'm raising capital now. Let's chat. So you, you also said earlier that you know, you're, you're a self-confessed nerd and love the, the coding aspects of, of this. And, and now you, you've sort of transitioned and, and seem pretty comfortable in, in the CEO role. What have been some of the the difficulties or, or struggles you, you've you've experienced in in sort of growing into that first time CEO role. Yeah, one of the things you got to learn, like, is that it's my job to hire the best person to work for me, the best head of sales, the best engineer, the best head of success, the best head of product, right? And it's my job to like tell them what's important. Like, these are our goals. Like, this is what our board want, it has feedback on for us, like the things that we should be thinking about. Here's our plan. Here's our goals. This is what I care about. These are the things at the end of the year that what we need to achieve and all the reasons why, right? And then for me to not tell them how to do it. Like, even though I might have opinions, I might have thoughts, I may... I, I'm an engineer. Like I have thoughts about our product build. I have thoughts about the way things look. Like, but try as much as I can to never talk about how they do it. If they're an expert and I've hired the right person, they're an expert. They're going to know how to do it because that's their job, right? And it's mostly my job to to prescribe the what and get out of the way, and be there to to cheerlead them and coach them and 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 push them along and help them when they're stuck if they need help. But that's been like the ultimate thing. It's like as CEO, you're doing a great job if, you know, in a jokingly way, like you got nothing to do every day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so much to do, but if you're doing the job right and you've kind of achieved this, the point where you have seven or eight direct reports in the C levels or VP levels, they're just going to go crush it. And then you know it's working. Yeah. And you know it's working. I mean, that's been such a valuable thing, like being able to be like, you guys got it. You got it. I'll be here. I'll be here if you need me. I, I probably don't, but I'm here if you need me. But that's not always that easy to do, especially if you're the guy, you know, who it's your baby, you built the thing. It can be challenging to to let go and, and step back. It can. It takes a lot of it takes a lot of trust. And I'm so fortunate that my CTO and I worked at Backupify with my co-founder Chris and I, my CRO, Backupify, my CMO. Back up a five, my VP of customer success at Insight Squared with me. And I just know these folks. I, I just know them for so long. And though we may have lost track of each other and kind of they've gone out in other ways, but I've seen them grow from when we were all kind of director level, manager level, and see them grow into these amazing, amazing uh, leaders and being able to say, I trust. I trust my CMO, Juliet, with our brand, our product marketing, our content, everything, because she's an expert. <laughs> she's an expert. I'm always there to help. I'm always there to send her ideas. But it's that trust, right? And seeing the results and feeling like we all won together. 
right? I, I've unified the whole company around that. Like when the AR line goes up and to the right, it's every single person in this company helped. Whether you're a QA engineer or a UX designer, or obviously you work in the sales team, you're the one closing these things, or you work in finance and you're, you never mess up payroll ever. You get everyone's commission calculation done perfectly, paid on time and stuff like that. We're all responsible for it. Right? Every single one of us helped that line grow. It's not, it's not just sales. You need a great product to do it. You need great infrastructure. You need great strategic thinking, competitive, competitive landscape. We're all working on it together. And, and you just go out and win. Go out and win. Have a lot of fun. Yeah, love it. All right, let's wrap up. We're going to go into the uh, lightning round. I'm going to ask you seven quick fire questions. Just try to answer them as quickly as you can. You ready? Okay. Yep. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Customers want to work with people they know, like, and trust. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Predictable Revenue, Aaron Ross. It's the foundation of inside sales. If you're in inside sales, uh, kind of business book, Starfish and the Spider, kind of decentralized leadership. Uh, I like that book a lot. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? Grit, determination, right? Grit, don't give up, can't give up. Yeah. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? I like to use Google Calendar in my personal life and, and block out things because I have the memory of like a sieve now running the company and, and being a dad also. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? I'd, lo- I'd love to get into uh, engineering, infrastructure, tech. I'm kind of a, like a snowflake computing fanboy and also uh, software for like product managers. I, 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 think there's, I think there's a big market there. What's an uh, interesting uh, or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Hmm, good one. Uh, I, uh, I can play three instruments, uh, piano, guitar, and tenor saxophone. Wow. I, I've got a guitar that's been sitting next to me for 10 years, and uh, I'm still trying to learn the second chord. <laughs> so I get some tips from you. <laughs> and finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work? Uh, being a dad, uh, being a dad to a beautiful two-year-old little girl and, and being a husband too. And so spending time with, with my family and, and watching sports and hanging out and, and grilling, definitely grilling. I love grilling. So. Awesome. Yeah. It must've been a little hard with the Patriots not even making the playoffs this year. Yeah. You know, I've, I've gone through a series of emotions, uh, <laughs> yeah. but overall happy, overall happy, happy for Tom. Cool. Happy for my buddy, Tom. All right. If people want to find out more about Link Squares, they can go to linksquares.com. And uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can surely email me, vishal at linksquares.com. Awesome. We'll include a link to the uh, to your Twitter and, and LinkedIn profiles in the show notes. Great. Well, Vishal, thank you so much for uh, joining me. It's been it's been fun chatting and and kind of hearing the story of uh, just how this this uh, this opportunity or, or this situation at Backup Backupify turned into uh, a business idea and uh, how you've grown that. So, uh, thanks for sharing the story and and for uh, you know some of the lessons and, and things that you've learned along the way. I appreciate that, and I wish you and the team all the best of success. Thank you so much, Omar. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Cheers.